0: Hello and welcome to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC podcast, where we cover new ways to raise capital, drive growth, and create value in an ever-changing world with insights and outlooks from the RBC Capital Markets team. I'm Vito Sperduto, Global Head of Mergers and Acquisitions, and as always, I'm joined by Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chair of Global Investment Banking. Hey, Larry. Great to be here as always, Vito. As we head into the end of the year and look forward to 2024, we'll be releasing four very special episodes of Strategic Alternatives, which will focus on the macroeconomic outlook in key regions across the globe. Today, we're joined by our U.S. economist, Michael Reed, and Blake Gwynn, RBC's head of U.S. Rates Strategy. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Vito. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Well, we're excited to dive in to hear your perspectives, especially as we think about the impacts on the U.S. economy in the year ahead. So, let's dive in. I think, you know, first and foremost, everybody's talking about a soft landing, which, you know, Michael, as we've talked about, it hasn't been the case throughout the year. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of twenty twenty three, as you've always talked about, that wasn't the expectation. But certainly now that's what folks are dialing into based on where you know monetary policy has taken us and you know, really as you know, what we're seeing the consumer behavior right now and across all the metrics that you track. So Year to date the US economy is holding up better than expected as we'll talk about and estimates of economic growth have been bumped up to better than 5% coming out of the third quarter but you know the consumer headwinds are starting to become apparent and we'll see if they cause issue with regards to achieving a soft landing so with all that in mind how do you think about it you know are we actually going to hit a soft landing and what's that going to look like
1: yeah, that's a great question, Vito. And certainly a soft landing is achievable and the Fed can help deliver that. If you look at inflation data, that's on the right track. But a good place to look, as you mentioned, is Q3 growth. And what we saw there is uh, recently an upward revision to headline growth to 5.2%. But on consumer spending, that was a revised lower. That's really a result of some of the mounting headwinds that we expect to see leading to slower growth, as well as weakening in the labor market Certainly though, we would stop short of calling for a recession in 2024. Overall, we see the risks around our uh, 2024 GDP forecast due to the downside, uh, while in contrast, some geopolitical conflicts and higher energy prices could tip the balance of risks around our inflation forecast to the upside. But really for the inflation front, one thing that is worth noting is there's a long runway for housing prices, in particular, the owner's equivalent of rent to push inflation lower over the course of 2024. And in fact, if you look at home prices, while those are continuing to tick up, OER lags existing home price sales by about 22 months. So we still have quite a runway ahead uh, for prices to move lower in the eyes of CPI. So Michael, just on that
2: interesting point, um, how are you thinking about inflation psychology embedding itself? Because even though inflation is on the right track, it feels like the Fed is, uh, you know, working to control it. You know, the longer it's out there, you know, the more uh, there's a risk that expectations get embedded. What are you seeing now, and when you look forward to 2024, what are what are going to be some of the key things you're watching in terms of how the consumer is reacting to the Fed?
1: Sure, great question. And if you look at some of the inflation expectation data. A lot of it revolves around the changes to prices for gasoline and food. Uh, certainly the pace of growth for real incomes is slowing. So that's gonna weigh further on the consumer here. Add to this some of the, the growing burden elsewhere, whether you look at uh, durable large ticket items that tend to use uh, consumer debt. At the rates at which we have now, uh, a lot of those purchases are becoming untenable. On top of that, the existing debt load, whether it be from consumer credit card debt, auto loans, personal loans, uh, is certainly weighing on the consumer in the form of non-mortgage personal interest payments. So right now, non-mortgage personal interest payments are at 2.8% of disposable personal income, while the savings rate has fallen to 3.8%.
2: Thank you. That's very interesting and obviously something that feeds into general economic confidence.
0: Building upon that confidence point, Michael, how do we balance that with the consumer? So I think what we're
1: seeing right now is kind of a divergence in confidence. On the one hand, uh, as you mentioned, confidence is being hurt by higher prices. But on the other hand, the labor market is in a great place. We have the unemployment rate at an all-time low, still quite a high level of job openings. And still through the end of 2023 here, we expect payrolls to continue to rise. So on the labor market front, while we do expect some weakening heading into 2024, we're not looking for job losses to materialize, certainly here by the end of the year. What
2: are the biggest risks you're worried about, Michael? Obviously things that are beyond maybe the Fed's control. What are the things that can at least foreseeably affect your outlook?
1: Yeah, great question. And you know, one thing we've been watching quite closely Uh, is the Consumer and and Household Debt Report from the New York Fed, as well as as non-business bankruptcies. Just recently, we saw the Household and Consumer Debt Report come out that showed credit card delinquencies are on the rise. And mind you, this is reporting data through quarter three, so this does not yet capture the impact from federal student loans resuming. And in particular, I want to highlight a group there, the 30- to 39-year-old age cohort which happens to have one of the highest shares of federal student loan debt burden. So already we're starting to see some consumer stress before even adding on that additional debt. On top of that, we're also starting to see those non-business bankruptcies tick up. So it's just a sign that while certainly households are in good financial shape coming out of COVID,
0: the cracks are starting to show. Just as we think about the labor market, a topic that a lot of people uh, obviously are injecting into every aspect of all the conversations we have is generative AI. Is it actually starting to impact job loss in terms of jobs that are now not necessary because of that? Or is it more just of a psychological impact in terms of the consumer?
1: As far as what we're seeing in the data, you know, I would say it's more of a psychological impact at this stage. If you look at payroll numbers, whether it be in the tech sector or occupational sector, for those folks who are employed, say, as software engineers outside of the tech sector, uh, we're not really seeing strong growth. Add to this, if you look at the investment side of uh, GDP, we're not really seeing uh, strength in the intellectual property uh, component there. So that's really where you would expect to see notable strength, if indeed uh, the the AI was having some sort of of impact that would be measurable in terms of our national accounts.
0: Yeah, no, agree. I think this is all much more psychological at this point. Even though it's you know been less than a year since ChatGPT even came out at this point, it's amazing how much of the headlines it occupies.
2: So let me ask about politics. And the impact of presidential and congressional elections in 2024, as well as geopolitics. Talk to us a little bit about how the domestic political dynamics that we're seeing you know, could affect the overall economic outlook from your perspective next year.
1: Sure. I think you have a few things going on. First, it's just worth highlighting that there are some fiscal programs um, that have had a notable impact in 2023 and that's in the form of the CHIPS Act and Inflation Reduction Act. But those should largely fade through 2024. And what we have now is, is certainly a political situation where there is no clear uh, winner in terms of either political party passing through any kind of programs. And in our view, really, we're gonna see kind of a status quo uh, moving into 2024.
3: Yeah, so just to add on to that, Michael, I think if you look at the last two presidential elections, uh, we had very large market moves. You know, markets took both the twenty sixteen and the twenty twenty elections very positively. Uh, we saw risk assets rise, treasury yields sold off. But I think there's some really important differences about those two elections that I think kind of changed the way we're thinking about twenty twenty four. I think the expectations of any kind of big infrastructure or fiscal spending are are going to be much, much lower than they were in either twenty sixteen or twenty twenty. You can see over the last few months, you know, how much interparty fights. That have kind of been going on. Um, The margins are likely to remain very, very slim in both houses of Congress. And I just think it's going to be very difficult for either Biden or Trump to really push through any kind of large fiscal package through Congress. I would also say that, unlike the Biden uh, 2020 election, there really isn't this unifying issue to deal with in the way that we had with COVID. You know, that was able to kind of bring in both parties. And, you know, that's why that was able to pass. We don't really have that set up going into here. So, I don't think you have the infrastructure piece. I think the expectation that, you know, Trump could maybe do a little bit of deregulation. On the flip side, I think some of that is nullified by the fact that he's largely expected to kind of pick up the trade where we left off. So you kind of have that market positivity on deregulation, but market negativity on trade war. You flip over to the Biden side, I think it's largely gonna be status quo. So I just have a hard time thinking that we're really gonna see as big of a market reaction around this election as we did in 2016 and 2020.
0: Why don't we talk a little bit about the outlook for monetary policy and the Fed. As we record this podcast in the first week of December, last week Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams reiterated that the Fed's benchmark lending rate is at or near its peak level. And look, I think he also said that the Fed expects to maintain a restrictive stance for some time to bring inflation back to its 2% goal, which we all look toward. And Williams uh, was very specific when he said that inflation, you know, he expects it to continue to move down to 2% in 24 and close in on that target in 2025, which, I, you know, I think a lot of folks have varying views on. And they expect economic growth to be below trend, but positive next year. So, Given all that, what are you seeing as the current view out there? What what are your expectations? And, and what do you think convinces the Fed that inflation is down and it's going to stay down?
3: You kind of mentioned two different Fed narratives there, or at least two things that I kind of separate. One is the terminal rate. How high does the Fed have to hike to really uh, get on the right side of inflation? And then I think there's this almost separate question of how long they stay at the current rates and when do they start cutting. And I think as far as that terminal rate and the hiking story, I think we can pretty much leave that in 2023 i think it's become very clear that the last hike was in july and i think even from the fed they're communicating that they have a very high bar to delivering any more hikes. so i really don't see that starting outside of a very convincing reacceleration of inflation so i think that really means that the first half of 2024 the story is really more about how long do they hold you know where did they start to cut question and i think we've seen the kind of market volatility switch from that first theme to the second theme you know, in 2023, a lot of the pricing volatility in race markets was was about that conversation around the terminal rate and how many hikes. You know, later in the year, that started to shift to cuts and, and when that first cut occurs. And I think that just continues into the early part of 2024. Where I think that conversation goes is really one of these soft landing kind of adjustment type of cuts rather than a forced, you know, very rapid attempt to get rates back into accommodative territory that's brought on by some kind of hard landing. You know, everything Mike was talking about before comes to pass, we see this slowing in the data, but again, not really recessionary, not hard landing, inflation continuing to gradually come down. I think it's going to relatively quickly become appropriate for the Fed to start paring back on some of that hiking that they've already delivered. The way I think the Fed looks at it is really through balance of risks. So for the last year and a half, two years, the only thing that they have had to consider are upside risk to inflation. Unemployment rate has been extremely low. They've had no downside risks on the labor side of their mandate. All they have had to worry about is inflation. That is shifting as we move into 2024. Inflation has come off the boil, and now we're starting to see some potential downside risks to labor, and I think they're going to have to respond to that. So I think it's really an adjustment process. I don't see it as a hard landing, you know, oops, we better cut very quickly to get back to accommodative territory. It's really preventative. You heard Mike describe it as, you know, preventing a hard landing rather than responding to one.
2: That's a really key point that last point that the feds worried and should be worried more about downside risks as part of its higher interest rate policy as we move into 2024, and it relates to obviously to the political dynamics of 2024 as well. I mean, I don't think, even though the Fed is independent, I don't think they want to trigger unexpected significant downturn You know, before we head into November next year. Can I, I want to follow up with something about the dynamic between the Fed's balance sheet and quantitative tightening on the one hand and the rise of interest rates on the other. The Fed has not said anything other than it's going to continue to shrink its balance sheet. How does that play into the dynamic uh, for both economic growth and rates from your perspective?
3: And Larry, you mentioned that um, you know there's a lot of discussion about rate policy and not a lot about balance sheet policy. That's exactly the way the Fed wants it. You know, they want rates to be seen as the primary policy tool. They want the balance sheet wind down to you know be like watching paint dry. They don't want to be moving it back and forth and changing the pace and, and you know really being kind of active on that side. But it does provide some amount of tightening into financial conditions. And I think one thing that gets lost a lot of times when people talk about balance sheet wind down is you can't just look at what the Fed is doing because it really matters what kind of securities are replacing the, the ones that the Fed is allowing to run off. Now, Treasury has a decision here. They could issue all Treasury bills with three month maturity or they could replace the Fed with all 30 year securities. Those have very, very different implications for markets. They have very different implications for financial conditions and how much tightening is provided to the economy. Generally, I would think that the more longer dated stuff that the Treasury issues, the more you're going to see rates rise, the more tightening that is going to provide to the economy versus the more shorter run they do, the less impact or follow through to the economy that that's really going to have. So you kind of have the two pieces. You have the fact that the Fed is going to continue winding down their balance sheet, But then you have this other piece of how is Treasury replacing the Fed as a holder of Treasuries? And at least what we've seen so far is they're willing to be a little bit lighter on that duration side, on that long duration side than markets may have been expecting. They've done a lot of bill issuance. They are starting to issue some longer dated coupons over the last two quarters. But even there, that has underwhelmed markets a little bit. This last quarter, they actually pulled back a little bit versus what the markets were expecting for long-end issuance. And I think they showed some willingness to rely on bills a little bit more if we start to see long-end rates picking up. So that kind of takes away a little of the teeth.
2: one of the points you made, Blake, is that how the Fed replaces the maturing debt matters. And I'd ask maybe Michael a question because the Fed isn't just replacing treasuries as they mature, they're also replacing mortgage-backed securities. Is that going to actually be a little bit of an overhang on the housing market, Michael?
1: Yeah, I think that could certainly be an overhang in the sense that we already have a a rather tight market in terms of sales. So for those folks who are left and actively looking for uh, homes at this stage, you'll see the risk increasing. Certainly we noted this long wage growth. We know as well that with mortgage rates where they are, even if the Fed does cut, they're certainly not going to move down to a place where we saw in 2020 and certainly nowhere near close to where most existing homeowners are locked in. So the market's going to stay really thin, and I think that just means a lot more volatility in that particular
0: market. As we take all of this into account and think about the market specifically, how much of this outlook is already priced into the market? Blake, you just talked about the fact that you know we can leave the terminal rate discussion in 23 in terms of any further increase, but how much is baked in in terms of cuts? and could there be some upside in the market depending on what happens? Yeah, I mentioned before that we've long thought that the last hike was in July. You know, we had this call for quite a while that the first cut
3: would be in June of next year, that it would be this kind of adjustment type of cuts, a gradual return to something close to neutral. It was very out of consensus for a while, and I think market pricing, even up to about a month ago, market pricing was very far from that. There had been a big desire by markets to kind of fade the Fed cuts that were priced into 23. You know, we were getting a lot of strong data in Q3 of this year. And I think in general, the crowded trade was to basically say, hey, there's no way the Fed's cutting next year. Let's lean against that pricing. I think the consensus has kind of come to us. You're hearing more Fed speakers kind of talk about this idea of adjustment cuts. You're seeing it more in kind of the media. And I think the pricing has started to reflect that more. So right now, if you look at, at Fed pricing, we have come back to something more in line with our call, which is for five 25 basis point cuts in 2024 even if we realize this call, even if we move into next year and we start to see signs that the Fed is going to cut in that kind of June timeframe that we expect, even though that's what's priced for the front end and the pricing of the Fed already has that accounted for, I still think there's the ability for rates to rally by a a much bigger degree and uh, for the curves to continue to steepen. Even if it's priced in, as you get close to there, the markets are always gonna try to front run the Fed. Yeah, we've
2: seen that whole market dynamic play out, certainly in 2023 and back into 2022. Blake, you talk about the the push and pull of markets and the Fed. Do you feel that we're coming to a logical equilibrium, or do you expect next year to be choppy again, as we've sometimes seen in, in the past year or two?
3: I think we've all kind of gotten used to this idea that when the Fed says something, it's almost kind of a commitment or it's, it is forward guidance. And I think we're actually in a period now where when the Fed is talking, it's really more a snapshot in time. And I think Powell had been a bit frustrated by that. And you saw that in recent press conferences where he basically said, look, these things that we're giving you, this communication about where rates are going, this is just a point in time and it can change tomorrow. If the data changes, we will change our view. So I think in that kind of framework to the question that you're asking, I'd like to think that we're kind of moving towards an equilibrium, but I think the Fed is going to be very reactive to data. They're not going to be beholden to any kind of communication they're giving today about what they're going to do. So, I think there's still going to be some volatility as markets learn to process a Fed that is not spoon-feeding them where the next move is going to be. Michael, what
2: are some of the the geopolitical curveballs that could upset your forecasts or change your forecasts for 2024 in terms of the overall outlook?
1: Things can always happen out there, and some of the the issues we've been seeing in the Middle East could add to oil price pressure, certainly moving up as well as the ongoing conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Keep in mind, Ukraine is one of the largest exporters of food in the world. So any continued or prolonged conflict there would certainly add to food inflation continuing to be sustained here.
3: And I would just say one thing too, like I think this year, more than many others in my career, kind of looking at what those risks might be, I'm coming up with very little to be honest with you. But I think in general, if you're looking for signs of over leverage or, you know, really kind of worrying signs across the data or in financial markets, just imbalances growing, whether it's in funding or other types of markets, it's really tough to
0: see them. Do you think some of that is related to a confidence in being able to manage through those environments based on their experience over the last three, four, five years? And so I wonder if in terms of geopolitical items or the election or things like that impacting the markets and and monetary policy and rates just kind of feels like out there there's, there's a confidence that we can get through this because we can manage through it, not necessarily a confidence that we know it's going to go lower. Is that how you think about it?
3: You know, some of the risks, particularly for your issuers, when we're thinking about kind of rate levels, and I think a lot of the questions around you know, are they going to go higher? We've had a lot of false starts, but I don't worry so much on that front as far as like a discrete type of risk, like a geopolitical event or an election. I think our view has been that the market in many cases has been mistaking, you know, still kind of idiosyncratic pandemic effects in inflation with some kind of secular shift. And I think as inflation continues to come down, as it has, that view that we are in some kind of new, let's call it 4% type of inflation environment from here on out, that has started to break a bit. And I think with it, those risks of the Fed having the hike to 6% or above or of 10-year yields going to 7%, those type of tail risks have really started to come off. And I feel very confident that we have seen that high and that those fears have really started to come down more permanently as we head into 24.
1: Still, Blake, you know one of the things we've talked about is perhaps the shift in narrative the Fed takes in terms of their approach to inflation. And what we've seen through this hiking cycle is that they're very much focused on getting core inflation back to 2%. It's probably worth highlighting over the course of 2024, we do see inflation coming down as we noted, but at your end, we're expecting core inflation to land around 2.5%. So I think the question becomes, you know, starting uh, next year, how does the Fed change that narrative from perhaps saying we want to get back to 2% to accepting something between say 2 and 3%. In terms of core inflation.
0: Michael and Blake, it's been a great conversation, and as we've gone through a lot of detail in terms of expectations for 24, first I would highlight the fact that it's great to see the rest of the market get to where we were earlier in the year and have been driving from a view perspective in terms of our expectations for 24. So congratulations on that. but. Give us one final thought. What are you most focused on? What are you looking at in terms of all these different items that are the, sort of the, a key metric or a key thought, as especially as we're heading into 24, which is going to be a fairly interesting year? So, Michael, why don't you start us off?
1: Sure, Beto. You know, I think for us, again, the key theme is the consumer here. Consumer spending accounts for about 66% of GDP growth. So, as we head into 2024, we have... A weakening labor market where you're expecting to see wage growth slow. And this is just going to add to that pressure the consumer is seeing in terms of that growing debt burden. Yeah. I think the thing
3: I'm looking at most are going to be watching the most early in 2024 is just progress towards that first cut. We've seen some of the Fed officials already start to get a bit more relaxed in talking about when they might start to cut. And if we see that start to broaden out, see Powell himself starting to mention that. You know, I think that will very clearly signal an end to the, or I should say a high point in yields, uh, we will know that that has already been hit and should open the door to further rally and, and curve steepening. So I just really am watching that Fed communication around the cut and, and waiting to see if they start getting a little bit more comfortable with with starting the adjustment process that that we're talking about.
0: Well, Blake and Michael, thank you for joining us today. It was a great conversation regarding your US outlook for 2024. I'd encourage the listeners to take advantage of the report that was just put out a couple of weeks ago in terms of their view on the Forward Outlook for 2024. There's a lot of detail that adds to a lot of the content that we've talked about today. So stay tuned for more insights in future episodes of Strategic Alternatives. And thank you everyone for joining us today.
2: Thanks very much, Vito. Great
0: chat. You have been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC podcast. This episode was recorded on December 4th, 2023. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share the podcast with others. Thank you.